Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 14, verse 9. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are definitely going to be keeping our scripture readers on their toes with all those names in this series. Thank you. Uh, for those of you that have been with us, we started last week uh, during Lent, uh, a special Lenten series that we're calling the Day of the Lord. Uh, and what we're going to be doing, and we started this last week and we're going to continue on today, is that we're going to be looking at uh, the minor prophets throughout the course of this series and particularly looking at what the minor prophets uh, are talking about, what they mean when they speak of the Day of the Lord. Uh, we talked about this last week, but quickly, this day, this Day of the Lord, uh, was both something that happened in the past in history, it's also something that will be happening into the future. For that context, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe listen to that week. Uh, but this day, this Day of the Lord for Israel, was a day that was uh, going to either be a day of rejoicing or it was going to be a day of sorrow, and all of that depended on their relationship to the Lord of that day. But what we also saw is that for Israel, they had become a people of great idolatry, great wickedness, great injustice. And so as a result of that wickedness, the day of the Lord came, and it was a day of great sorrow. For they were people that would be conquered and sent into exile so that God could purify the land of their evil, the evil that they had allowed uh, to persist. But we also saw that because God is abounding in love, slow to anger, and does not desire calamity, he also calls his people back to himself so that they might experience forgiveness and restoration and joy. Because of their hard-heartedness, they resisted him, and so they experienced judgment. But what we also saw is that for us, we don't need to experience the coming day of the Lord, the day that will come when Christ returns. We don't need to experience that day as a day of sorrow we can experience it as a day of joy if we would just trust in him. Now today we're going to continue on looking at the, the different themes of several of the, uh, of the minor prophets. And today we're going to be looking at Hosea 
to see how the theme of Hosea might help us process our relationship to the Lord, for us to begin considering what it means for us to turn back to the Lord. And so what we're going to do is look at the story of Hosea found in this book. And what we're going to see, essentially, is that the story of Hosea is a story of marriage, it's a story of unfaithfulness, and then it's a story of redemption. Right? Let's look at those three stories within Hosea. So first, Hosea is a story of marriage. Uh, let me give you a little quick context on this book. This book was written, of course, by the prophet Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and in chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea, we see the story of Hosea's life, which gives a bit of a framework for the prophecy that he is presenting to the people of this day. And the entire book of Hosea centers around God's purposes and the things that God desires to reveal to his people through marriage. This is a story about a marriage. And before we get into all of the details of Hosea's life, I did think it necessary for us to begin by considering the ways in which God reveals his love to his people, particularly through marriage. Because what we've, what we've done, and we've certainly done this uh, for, uh, in many different ways, is that we've seen that God reveals his love for his people in a variety of different kinds of ways, different metaphors. God is described as a father who loves his children. God is described as a shepherd, one who watches over and guides his children. The scriptures reveal him, of course, as a king, the one who rules and reigns over his people. But each one of those metaphors is not complete, but rather it's simply describing an aspect of God's love. But the other way that God's love is described throughout the scriptures is also through marriage and through the marriage covenant. The reason is marriage provides additional insights into God's very particular specific love for his people. In, in, uh, specifically, it shows the intimacy the prioritization, the sanctification that God desires to have through his relationship with his people, all of which is reflected in the marriage covenant. And so I need to say a few things about what the Bible teaches about marriage before we can actually take a look at what's being uh, described in Hosea, because I think it will give us uh, some necessary context. So let's start here. Uh, what exactly is marriage and how exactly does marriage reflect the love of God? Uh, I once heard uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she's a Christian apologist who um, does a lot uh, related to arguing for the Christian faith, but she, was, she said something about marriage once that, of course, I, I, I knew what she said, but it didn't quite hit me until I heard the way that she formulated the thought. Um, she was reflecting on Ephesians 5. If you know Ephesians 5, it's one of the go-to places where God is describing his love for his people through uh, a marriage covenant. And... Uh, what she said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but essentially what she said is she said, you know, God, he didn't look out into the world trying to find a really good example of how he loves his people, then stumble across marriage, look at marriage and say, ah, yeah, marriage is kind of like what I just, what I feel toward my people. I'll use marriage as the example of how I love my people. She said, that's not how God works. Instead, God didn't look out and discover marriage but rather God gave marriage. He created marriage as a reflection of his love for his people. In other words, marriage is given as a way to point us ultimately back to the love of God. 
So if it's that important, and she's right, if, she, if it's that important, what exactly is marriage? Well, from the biblical perspective, this is extraordinarily important for both understanding not only God's love for us, but also for understanding what marriage is and how we ought to approach the covenant of marriage. Marriage, by God's design and intention, is a relationship, a fidelity, a faithfulness, of intimacy, of depth of relationship, of growing and sanctifying and sharpening. It's, it's an important place for us to begin there because we live in a time and a culture that has very much redefined what marriage is. And instead of the things that I've just described, marriage has largely been stripped down to emotional and relational fulfillment, or it's simply used as a social utility. Often today, when we think about marriage, marriage is too often a way to find some kind of fulfillment of my personal needs or my desires, whether they be emotionally or sexually or otherwise. So the goal then becomes trying to find a soulmate that best fulfills my needs. Or marriage is simply a social utility that in some way benefits me financially or socially. But God's intention for marriage is something far more than just the fulfillment of needs or social utility. God's intention for marriage is that marriage ought to be this lifelong faithfulness, intimacy, and sharpening. Marriage is so much more than what often our culture expects from it. Let me explain to you what I mean. I said it's essentially three things. There's faithfulness, there's intimacy, and there's sharpening. Let me say a few things about that first with faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Marriage is a unique relationship that requires a level of faithfulness and commitment that no other relationship requires. It is the giving of one's self fully and completely. You no longer uh, make decisions based on your own needs and your own desires, but now you have to make decisions based on the needs and desires of someone else. It's a commitment to put one's spouse above everything else, above everyone else, and to do so for a lifetime. And this is the relationship that God desires to have with his people. I mean, he desires a relationship with people that puts nothing before him, the way a spouse out of love puts their husband or their wife above themselves. You know, if I put anything above my marriage, it will eventually undermine my marriage. If I put my career or success or friends or the affections or affirmations of others above my wife, it will corrode my marriage. And God says, I want a marriage. I want a relationship with my people where that relationship is prioritized above all else. That's faithfulness. But what about this intimacy idea? Marriage is unique in its ability to bring intimacy. You can give yourself emotionally, or within marriage rather, you give yourself emotionally and spiritually and physically in ways that you refuse to give yourself to others. There's a depth of relationship as a result of the faithfulness that we just talked about that does not compare to other relationships. And so as a result of that faithfulness, there's an intimacy that ought to uh, develop. I mean, just as one example, I mean, this is why sex is designed to be solely for marriage. Because sex outside of that covenant bond of marriage is a refusal to be fully intimate with someone. It's to hold something back. 
You know, the, the notion of sex outside of the covenant of marriage in many ways, too often, is a way of saying, I will give you my body, you will give me yours, we will experience a moment of pleasure, but I still need to keep my options open. I don't want to be stuck with you, so I don't think I can marry you. I just want your body. And that is hardly a way to produce the kind of intimacy that God intends for sex within marriage. Because ultimately, sex is not primarily about pleasure. Sex, from a biblical perspective, ought to be a covenant renewal event every time it happens. It ought to be a reminder to both spouses that I am completely yours and you are completely mine. Plus, because of the intimacy of marriage, you know, just use mine uh, as an example, my wife knows me in ways none of you do. I will share things with her that I won't share with any of you. I trust her with things that I probably would not trust many of you with. And she does the same thing with me. Why? Because I know she's not going anywhere. She knows I'm not going anywhere out of a commitment to one another. And that commitment, that confidence, produces a depth of intimacy that cannot be had outside of that kind of commitment to one another. And because of the intimacy we share, she has a lot of power in the sense of she can say things to me that would absolutely devastate me more than most could. Not that she does, but she could if she wanted to. But she also is able to encourage me in ways that no one possibly else could. And even in simple things. You know, if one of you comes to me and tells me that my sermon really moved you, that was nice and very encouraging. But when my wife tells me my sermon, right, she's heard them all. But when she tells me it moved her, it hits just a little bit different. Why? Because there's an intimacy that we have. I desire to hear those kinds of things from her more than I desire to hear them from anybody else. God seeks this kind of relationship with his people where when he says something to us, it means more to us than what anybody else could possibly say. God seeks not just a formal commitment or a contract in a relationship with us, but he desires to have a depth of relationship where we know him and he knows us. A relationship where he says what he says matters infinitely more than what anyone else says. A relationship where we give our whole selves to him. Intimacy with God is being able to say, I am completely yours and you are completely mine. The last thing I said that marriage can do is that there's also a sharpening, a growth, a, a sanctification that happens. Marriage sharpens in very unique ways because we've made a commitment to one another, because my wife and I, because we know each other in ways that no one else knows, that means that there's also an opportunity for growth and for sanctification that happens through the relationship, through the sanctifying fire of learning what it means to stop being so selfish and self-oriented and self-centered. Marriage demands we think of others more than ourselves, and that's incredibly sharpening. And again, God desires for a relationship with his people that is one of growth and sanctification, that is rooted in fidelity and commitment and also intimacy the kind of relationship that makes us better people, people that are making us more loving, more compassionate, more holy. See, we can't look at marriage and only see marriage as a means of fulfillment or as some kind of social utility. Rather, 
Marriage is a picture of God's profound faithfulness to his people, his intimacy, the, the sharpening power of that relationship. So is he our king? Is he our shepherd? Is he a father? Yes. But he's also a faithful bridegroom to his people. Okay, with all that said, why spend all of that time talking about marriage? Because without that context, I do worry that we miss the gravity of what comes next. Because in the story of Hosea, not only do we see a, a story of marriage, but we also see Hosea as a story of unfaithfulness to a marriage. I'll show you what I mean. Look at, uh, again at our passage in, in verse 2. It says, When the Lord uh, began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. Let me stop there for a moment. God tells Hosea to go marry and to start a family with a woman who is probably going to be unfaithful to him. And she was. He married Gomer. He loved her. He provided for her. But then we read later on that they started a family. Uh, but also at the same time that they started the family, we find that she did not remain faithful to him. And they ended up having, she ended up having three children. The first uh, was named, and this wasn't in the passage, but I'll just, uh, for context, the first child they had was named Jezreel. And then the second two were named first, No Mercy. And then the third was named, You Are Not Mine. Interesting names for children. Why? Because she had left him and began sleeping with other men. Plus, as you read on in chapter 2, she, what you see is that there was this pattern that she had. She would go out at night. She would sleep with other men. But then during the day, she would come back home and return to Hosea. And when she would return, Hosea would lavish her with gifts of grain and wine and oil. But even in the midst of those gifts, she would take them and she would leave and go chase after other men. And not only that, she would take these good gifts given by Hosea, and she would use them as sacrifices to Baal, the pagan god of the Canaanites. Now, we might expect at this point, this kind of relationship, this kind of back and forth, we might expect that it would, of course, lead to divorce. Why would we not expect that? By all accounts, such wickedness has absolutely crushed the marriage vows of faithfulness that they would have taken. But in chapter 3, verse 1, which we, we uh, put in there, God tells Hosea that though she left you and though she has started these other relationships, he says, go. Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And so what does he do? If you read on in the story, you see that he goes and he finds her. But when he finds her, he discovers her not in the bed of another man. Instead, he discovers that she has not just slept with other men, but now she's found herself caught up in prostitution. In fact, her life has spiraled out of control because actually when he found her, not only had she fallen into prostitution, but he found her up for sale as a slave. Now, we've said that in Israel, as a result of their idolatry and their wickedness, they had really become no different than the other pagan nations of the day. And amongst those nations, slavery, and in particular sex slavery, would have been very common. And so because of that, there almost surely was some kind of public auction 
They would have been common in the day. A public auction where the sexually enslaved and concubines would be put up on auction blocks. It would have been a scene of great shame. Those being uh, sold would have likely been stripped down naked in the public square so that the buyers knew what they were buying. Again, this would have been a scene of great shame and grief and despair. And it was there that Hosea finds his wife, Gomer. She had left the security and the love of her marriage. She had chased other men, men who abused her, took advantage of her, and now enslaved her. She had fallen so far. Now, what does this have to do with the day of the Lord in the context of this series? Look at verse 9, the last part of what we read. It says, Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the, rebellion, or the rebellious stumble in them. Who is discerning? Who is able to look at this and understand what's being said? It's an important question. Because this entire scene, everything I just described to you, is not just about what's happening between Hosea and Gomer. This entire scene, I hope you are beginning to realize, is also a scene that is reflecting Israel, God's people. You know, again, back to our passage. When God tells Hosea to marry Gomer, he says this. He says, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land, Israel, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Then when God tells uh, Hosea to go get Gomer back, he also goes on and he says, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. But then he goes on and says, love her as the Lord loves Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Just quickly, the sacred raisin cakes. They were treats that would have been eaten by those worshiping other idols. They were, they were eating these sweets as part of their ritual worship to other gods. This whole story is a reflection of a people who had the security, had the comfort, had the faithful love of a bridegroom who sought nothing but their good. But Israel was a people that though they were loved and cherished by God, though God had lavished them with gifts the way that Hosea had lavished gifts upon Gomer, though they had this love, they went off and they slept with other men. They went off and found other gods to worship. Though God was faithful to them, they were unfaithful to him. This entire story is one of unfaithfulness. And my friends, lest we assume that this is simply Israel's story, know that it's not. Because what we see here is actually our story as well. This is a common story to all humanity that we reject. We too often reject the faithfulness of God and instead pursue other lovers, other gods. We take the good gifts of God that he has given to us and when we use them, sacrificing them to these other gods, the other things in which we find our security. And maybe for a while... We enjoyed the sacred raisin cakes, the sweetness of these things. But they end up 
simply becoming poison to us. And the gods that we pursue end up becoming our enslavers. And so the question, of course, is to what are we enslaved? What gods do we worship? Because we can so easily dismiss notions of idolatry. When we think about idolatry in the context of uh, Baal, or we think about enslavement in the context of what we just uh, saw uh, Gomer in the midst of, we too often dismiss it. But my friends, we are Gomer, seeking our fulfillment in something other than God. So the question is, what is that for you? What are we running toward, leaving God behind? You know, for some of us, we thought our careers or our education would provide some kind of satisfaction, a satisfaction that only God provides. We are Gomer. We thought that money would provide the stability that only God can provide, and in that, we are Gomer. We thought friendships would provide comfort, comfort that only God provides, and in the midst of that, we're Gomer. We thought that sexual exploits or sexual freedom would provide, provide us happiness, a happiness that only God provides, and in that, we are Gomer. We thought that being far from God's law or rejecting God's standards would in some sense give us a sense of personal value or worth, a worth, ironically, that only comes from God, and in that, we've become Gomer. For some a political party, a particular identity, a particular vision of what you hope the future to be becomes our hope and fulfillment. And in that, we become Gomer. If you're married, maybe you thought your spouse could provide the the fulfillment and the security and even intimacy that you desired only to find out that they could not bear the weight of expectations because it's only God who can fully bear that kind of weight. And in doing so, even in marriage, we become Gomer. If you're not married, maybe you think, I'll I'll finally be happy, I'll finally be fulfilled, I'll finally be satisfied, I'll finally be complete if I could just find a spouse. When in reality, that obsession devastates you when marriage does not come because only God could be all of those things for you. And even in that, we become Gomer. And I'll also say that if we're here, And we cannot think of a way that we have strayed because we're convinced that we are faithful. More than likely, your wandering is self-righteousness. And even in your self-righteousness, become Gomer. All of which becomes enslavers to us. I mean, we, we know this. We know people that become enslaved to all kinds of things. They become enslaved to their jobs, to money, to sexual exploits, to notions of freedom rooted in self-definition that are not God's intention. People that have become enslaved to the wrong expectations of what relationships ought to provide in the end, too often leaving us stripped down and vulnerable. We are an unfaithful people who regularly wander from the love of God. That old hymn is more true than I think many of us want to admit. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our story. That was Gomer's story. That is all of our stories. We are all in the midst of a story of unfaithfulness. But the story of Hosea and Gomer is not only a story of marriage. It's not only a story of idolatry, and adultery. 
but it's also a story of redemption. Let's look at that. Hosea finds his wife, enslaved by sin, finds her on the auction block. And his reaction says everything about his faithfulness to her. He finds her and does not have disdain for her, but desires for her to, or, or rather, to, uh, desires for her to feel the consequences of her, of her rejection of him. But what does he do? What does he desire? Well, as he sees his wife enslaved and for sale, he goes, as God told him to, he goes to show his love to his wife once again. He sees her on that auction block, and he says, that is my bride whom I love and whom I will redeem. Look at verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. What's happening there? Well, he's not buying her so that now she might become his slave. Instead, he pays this price to redeem her out of her slavery. And why does he buy her out of enslavement? In order to bring her home. He goes on to say, after, the, after he redeemed her, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same towards you. Now, there, there's some debate there about how that should be translated from the Hebrew, because some argue that the translation should actually say, be intimate with any man, including me. You will not be intimate with anyone, me included. In other words... Though I bring you home, we will both commit to not having sex with each other. And commentators note the significance of this. They note the reason for this was to give a season for their intimacy to be restored. Because it was going to take time. Hosea had been hurt deeply. And Gomer, no doubt, was broken and in need of healing herself. And so, in other words, by bringing her home, Hosea has paid a great debt on several different levels. He obviously spent a sizable amount of money to bring her home. He most certainly would have lost face amongst those who would not have possibly have been able to comprehend why he would be bringing her home. This would have been, been a scene of great shame, even for Hosea, a shame that he takes upon himself. And now he's taking upon himself the emotional, and the physical burdens of what it would take to restore the intimacy with his bride. This, my friends, is the story of the Bible. This is it. Everything I just told you about Hosea and Gomer is the gospel. God, in his love, sees us on that auction block, naked and full of shame, he looks upon us, not with disdain or desire for us to feel the consequences of our unfaithfulness, but he looks upon us and he says, that's my bride, whom I love and whom I will redeem. And redeem us, he does. Because like Hosea, God takes upon himself the costs of that redemption. Ephesians 1 tells us that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In his love, Jesus Christ redeems us 
with that blood, covers our nakedness and shame with his righteousness, and restores to us the status of being his bride. And as Ephesians 5 tells us, the bride for whom he lays down his life. He is more than our king. He is more than our father, more than our shepherd. God is also our bridegroom. The love of the bridegroom is seeking the love of the bride, his people. He is in pursuit of us, desiring that faithful, intimate relationship that changes us. And he does what's necessary to bring us home. You know, I said uh, earlier that there were several children born of Gomer, that one was named No Mercy, and the other named You Are Not Mine. And in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, and actually I have this uh, in the slide deck if you guys want to throw it up, God is speaking and referencing those two children. And this is what he says. In that day, that's the day of the Lord, on, in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, those who are not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What's happening there? This is God's promise to his people. That he will have mercy. That though we ran from being his people, he will call us his people so that we might again be home able to call him our God. And so, my friends, where do we stand before the Lord? What is our relationship to him? Maybe we have yet to experience him as that faithful bridegroom. Today is a day to experience that faithful, intimate, life-changing love of the bridegroom. Maybe today you've experienced that love, but you have found yourself like Gomer, like all of us, running, wandering, seeking other things. And today, God is calling us back to himself, pursuing us, reminding us of the redemption that's available to us if we trust in the work of Jesus. May the Spirit of God lead us home that we might again call him our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see us all the way down to the very bottom. You see all of our rebellion, all of our lusts, all of our unrighteousness, all of our wickedness. But God, though you see us in that way, do not desire to leave us there, enslaved by such things, but instead you pursue us. You see us enslaved and you redeem us. You take upon yourself the burden, the costs necessary for us to be brought home. God, for that we give you thanks and praise. And so, Lord, would you make clear to us, plain to us, the ways that we are searching for other men, for other gods. Convict us of that rebellion and waywardness. Lead us back to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, 
and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.